All right, good times, huh? Party, yeah, woohoo! It's good to see everybody. How y'all doing? Man, I don't know about you, but I feel like spring break should be happening right now. Anybody else like hit that wall? We're just like, when's vacation? When is vacation? It's not coming, guys. It's not going to happen. We did get the snowvid thing, though, right? We got that wasn't a vacation. And then remember when our water was actively trying to murder us? That was good times, good times. And that's just been 2021, amen, right? Yeah, this is great, this is great. It's going to be good. Anyway, um, I'm really excited to share uh, what the Lord's put on my heart with y'all tonight. Um, first, I wanted to kind of intro everything, and then, and then we'll, we'll read the scripture. So um, some of y'all may not know this, but I am like super political, like, I am, I am turbo political. I know it's, like, shocking to some of you. Other of you may not know that. But, uh, yeah, if you follow me on any social media during campaign seasons and stuff like that, you'll know it, right? I'm, I am so politically minded, right? Like, my, my business is religion and my hobby is politics. I'm the worst person to have at a family gathering, right? I will pick a fight with you over any of these topics, right? I am so, like politics driven that there was a large amount of my adulthood that I carried around a copy of the Constitution in my bag. Yeah. yeah. And I would rail against the 16th Amendment because it's the one that ruined America. Y'all don't even know what that is. Did you know we had over 16 of them? Okay, praise God. It's the income tax ones. So, taxation is theft. Anyway, right? So, I, I am like all about fighting for our rights. You know what I mean? Like I used to fly the Gadsden flag outside of my house. You know, that's the don't tread on me thing. It was cool before like the Capitol rioters turned it into a sign of insurrection against our constitution and government. But um, now I got to find a different one. I don't, don't put that flag outside anymore. Um, but yeah, like I love politics. I, I read, I, I uh, used to read like John Locke for fun right, the political philosopher, like, I'm not kidding, I, that stuff just, I find really engaging, and if I'm not careful, I get too engaged with it, you know what I mean? Like, I even vote in those elections that don't have the president on the ballot, you know, right? I show up to, to city council meetings, and I yell at people, right? Like, I, I just really love that stuff. I don't know why, yelling at people and politics, I love both of those things, we'll, we'll go with that, right? And, and if I'm honest, I, I have a lot of hope for the future because of my generation, your generation, right? We're, I'm old enough to say that we're two different generations now. I don't understand TikTok. I'm sorry. So that's what I'm, I'm guessing y'all do. So it's like a generational divide thing. Anyway, um, I feel like Abe Simpson, you know, Grandpa Simpson. I feel like him. Like I used to be with it. Then they changed what it was. Anyway, um, but yeah, like, I have a lot of hope for the future because both of our generations are really concerned with rights. You know what I mean? Like, like we really are worried about things being right and just. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, think about it. Like, the, remember the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And, and the riots where they, where they basically burned down, like, what was it, Milwaukee or whatever, right? Like, that... And then the Capitol riots that happened just like two months ago, 
that was just two months ago. It feels like a lifetime ago, you know. Um, I'm really tired of living through these once-in-a-lifetime events. I don't know about you, right? I've, I've survived like 10 apocalypses so far, and that's just in the last 12 months. Anyway, um, but the, the Capitol Hill riots and the BLM riots both have one thing in common. They're concerned about rights, okay? Like, they're concerned that everyone be treated fairly, and everybody gets what's fair. Does that make sense? Like, in that, even though they're on opposite ends of the political spectrum there, that undercurrent of sameness gives me so much hope. Does that, are y'all tracking with me? Yeah, y'all are with me. Okay, right? And so that's what gives me a lot of hope about the future, is that not only are we concerned about that, but we're willing to fight for it, you know? Like that weirdo that was wearing the buffalo horns and running around with like Nancy Pelosi's male, you know, he was willing to go to jail for it, right? He believed in it so strongly. Um, Y'all know what I'm saying. Okay, I, um, when I was in college, you know, that decade, um, I worked at Texas Roadhouse for a while. Have y'all been to that restaurant, right? It it was the most fun place to work, okay? There was a whole bunch of us that came out, we were all in Chi Alpha, and we all worked at Texas Roadhouse together, right? It was really cool. We got each other hired and stuff, and, and, and like, if you were like, hey, uh, give me a job at Texas Roadhouse, the rest of us would sit down with you and be like, all right, here's the deal. We've been working for years on our ministry there and our witness there, and if you screw it up, not only will we get you fired, but we'll slash your car tires, right? We, we were legit about it, right? And uh, we, would, um, we would do fun stuff like, uh, since we were the ones, like us, the Chi Alpha people, we were the ones that wouldn't go out and party on Friday night, so we would all get scheduled Saturday morning, right, because we weren't hungover. Um, but what they didn't know is that we just didn't sleep at night, so we were all super tired anyway. So a bunch of us started just bringing our bags of coffee, right, and like coffee grinders and French presses, and there was like a row of like six different flavors of coffee every Saturday morning, right, and, and then the owner, like he was like, hey, since y'all started doing the like the coffee thing, like everybody's pro- productivity's up, like everybody's working harder on Saturday mornings, so I'll start paying for your coffee, just when you run out, we'll reimburse you, I'm like, heck yeah, free coffee, right, and then, like, all the partiers, like, all the typical waitstaff people, they started coming up to us. Like, I remember one girl, she was like, I knew that I was going to get really drunk last night, and so I put my coffee mug in my car before I went to the club because I wanted to be ready, <laughs> right? It was cool. It was like a legit ministry. People are walking with Jesus now because of that, like, not just not because of the coffee or the clubs, but because of our witness, right? Anyway, so one time... Two of my friends that work there, they're both godly people. Both of them are in ministry right now, and I'm not going to say their names uh, because this is going on the internet, right? But, okay, so you know at Roadhouse, you have the peanuts, and you throw them on the floor, and that's part of the, uh, that's part of the appeal, you know? Well, at the end of the night, the waiters have to sweep that up, right? Now, there's like 20 of us working the floor, like waiting tables, but there's like four brooms, you know, and one of those brooms doesn't have any bristles anymore. It's just like a squeegee, you know what I mean? And so my two friends, one of them, I can't remember which one, grabbed the broom and set it in his section as like a way to claim it, right? But then he went and did his back work and cleaned the back, right? And so my other friend was like, that, that's dumb. You're not using it. So he took it and started sweeping his section, 
right, sweeping up all the peanuts. Well, the other guy comes out, and he sees that his broom is gone and sees that our other friend has it, right? They get into a straight-up argument, like a yelling match over a broom, you know? It's like, that's my broom! No, that's my broom! You aren't using it, right? Like fighting over a stupid broom, okay? And I remember, like, the next day I was talking to my buddy about it, and he was just like, man, I'm just so mad. You know, I feel stupid, but also I'm really mad. How dare he take my broom, right? And I remember just going, dude, you know, any time that you stand up for your own rights, you look like a two-year-old. Have you ever thought about that? I'm really experienced in two-year-olds, right? I've seen five of them. It's never been fun, okay? Right? Like, imagine, like, how it looked to the other people in the restaurant, the other wait staff, seeing these two people go, no, it's my broom! No, it's mine! Right? My, my three-year-old and four-year-old son did that today over a Paw Patrol car. That's mine! No, it's mine! You see what I'm saying? Anytime that we stand up for our rights, we look like we're two. Like we can do this in adulthood. Hey, I was going to park there. That's my parking spot. How mature do I look when I do that? Right? It's ridiculous. How many other things can we think of that we do this about? Anytime you stand up for your own rights, you look like a two-year-old. Isn't that silly? I mean, you can think of... I mean, just get on like, just get on the internet and Google Karen. Every Karen, right? If your real name's Karen, I'm sorry. But every Karen out there, what are they doing? They're standing up for their rights. The latest one I saw was a, a Karen in a bank that said she didn't have to wear a mask now. It's my right to not wear a mask! What are you going to do, arrest me? Actually, yes, click, click, and then she went into the car. <laughs> See what I'm saying? When you stand up for your rights, you always look like a two-year-old. You just do. All right? So that brings us to our scripture. All right? So open your Bibles to 1 James, or 1 James, <laughs> James 1. There's only one James in the Bible. Did you know that? Uh, well, book. So James 1, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. And, yeah, so turn your Bibles on. It's on the screen if you need it. If you're new to this Jesus thing, James is in the back. So, it's right after the book of Hebrews. So, also, James is in the back. (laughs) All right. Here we go. James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord God, will you help us hear what you're saying to us tonight, Lord? And not just hear it, but apply it, Lord. Let this message get deep down into our souls and change who we are. Father, we give you the right and the authority to convict us of sin, 
and convict us of righteousness. You are our God, and we will obey. Amen. Okay, so what does this have to do with what I just talked about? Not much, but, but hopefully we'll build a bridge and you'll see it, okay? So what we have here is the introduction, the greeting of the book of James. How many of y'all just kind of glaze through that? Like just kind of like you skip over it when you read through the Bible, right? Like there's the, there's the intros and the outros. Paul's really bad about it. He'll turn like a, a greeting into like this five-paragraph run-on sentence because that dude loves run-on sentences, okay? It's, I'm going to critique Paul's grammar here. Add a comma, dude. Anyway, um, right? These things are just, sometimes you just skip over them. But this one is particularly enlightening to me. Because we can actually look throughout Scripture and we can, we can examine James's life and we can see certain changes that take place. So we're going to talk about his life real quick and then see how his letter helps illuminate something that we can learn about him. Okay? Cool? All righty. So first off... The James that wrote this letter is affirmed by Scripture, by Paul in Galatians 1.19, that he's the Lord's brother. He's Jesus' brother and an apostle. It says, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Right? In Matthew 13, we have all the people, like, hearing Jesus preach, and they're like, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That Judas is the same guy that wrote the book of Jude, which is the second to last book in the Bible. BT dubs. That one's for free. Right? And then we also know that initially James didn't believe his brother. Right? How embarrassing must it have been that his older brother was walking around claiming to be God, right? We know that Jesus knew that because he says at the end of the, the passage in Matthew 13, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household, right? In Matthew 12, we have Jesus, he's speaking to the crowds, right? And the crowds, he's speaking to a crowd inside of a house. And then they're like, hey, uh, Jesus, you're... you're Family's outside. Your mother and brother are seeking you. And what was happening there is they didn't want to go in and make it look like they were affirming what Jesus was saying. They wanted Jesus to come out to them so they could be like, why don't we come home and take a nap or something? Does that make sense? Y'all tracking? Okay. And then in, in John 7, James is mentioned again. And what we see is that he's one of the brothers that are speaking to Jesus and they're encouraging him to leave Galilee, right? They say, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For, ev for not even his brothers were believing in him, right? So what they're doing is they're like, hey, Jesus, you won't shut up. You won't, like, just stay at home. So why don't you go somewhere else? Like, go a couple miles, hundred miles south, right? Because they're up in Galilee. And they want him to go down to Jerusalem where there will be some distance. And they can, they can pretend like they don't know what's going on. Does that make sense? Yeah? 
But at some point, something changed. At some point, something changed. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is reciting this, uh, that, that little passage in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It's actually one of the oldest like little creeds that we have in all of Christianity. Um, but in verse 7, it says, Then he, being Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So the resurrected Jesus appeared to James first and then the apostles. You see that? And then in Acts chapter 15, uh, that whole chapter is basically about the Jerusalem Council. is a super important event. But who do we find being the presiding person over that council but James? In verse 13, everyone talks and then James starts speaking. And he gives the final pronouncement. Right? He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And it looks like Paul and Peter and John were all deferring to his judgment. So how do you go from somebody that doubts Jesus to being somebody that, that is presiding over his church? And then we can go even further if we look at early church tradition and read some of the historical data that we have about James in the early church. We know that his name, that he came to be known by, was James the Just. James the Just. And it is said that he spent so much time in prayer in the temple, praying for his countrymen and praying for the world, that his knees became calloused like the knees of a camel. Because he kneeled in prayer for so long and so often. Uh, we know from the historian Josephus, who wasn't a believer, he was a Jewish historian. But he actually comments and says the martyrdom of James, when he was killed for his faith, offended a number of, this is a quote, those who were considered the most fair-minded people in the city and strict in their observance of the law. That means that James was such a just and holy and righteous man that even the Pharisees were offended when he was executed. Let that sink in for a minute. He became so well thought of that even those who disagreed with him were offended by his execution. You see that? In his martyrdom, the, the story that we receive from tradition is that they brought him up to uh, the top of the temple. And they said, hey, preach. Preach to everyone and let them know that Jesus isn't Lord. And he was like, nah. And so he goes to the top of the temple and they're like, go ahead and tell him. And he goes, all right, I'll tell him. And he starts preaching about Jesus. And they, in their rage, the Sanhedrin threw him off the, the edge and he fell down but didn't die. And so people started stoning him. And while he is being stoned, pummeled with stones, he's praying, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And eventually somebody comes over and clubs him over the head. And that's how he died. And people were so offended. There's even uh, some early, history, uh, early church historians that said that it was commonly viewed that the martyrdom of James was punished by the sacking of Jerusalem. 
that the contemporaries of, of James the Just, those Pharisees that he didn't agree with, when Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD, they were like, it's because we killed James the Just. You understand that? So we go from somebody that was super concerned about how people perceived him to somebody that didn't care how people perceived them to the point of death. How? He was concerned about his reputation, his family's dignity and honor, the right that he and his mother and brothers and sisters had to be well thought of. And then he changed the person that died, that didn't even stand up for his own right to defend himself. So what changed? I think the key to understanding what changed lies in the first verse of James's letter, when he says, bondservant. Bondservant, Right? James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, this word is kind of unique, right? The Greeks had lots of words to describe servanthood, right? And in ancient Rome in that time, a large percentage of the population of Rome was in servantship, whether it be slavery or servanthood. Does that make sense? So what would happen is your family would go into debt for whatever reason, or you couldn't pay your bills. And so you go to a rich guy, and you'd be like, hey, if you pay off my debt, I'll work for you until that's paid off. Sometimes you were in so much debt that you just had to sell yourself into slavery. Right? And the word for that is doulos. Doulos. And sometimes it's translated as servant. Other times it's bondservant, but its proper term is slave. Slave. But a doulos wasn't just any slave. Right? They, the Romans would go conquering, you know, they'd conquer a new territory, enslave all the people, send them back to Rome for work. Right? But a doulos was, was a little bit different. It was a voluntary position. Right? So a slave could work and earn his freedom back. It didn't happen often, but it could be done. Right? Or a servant would pay off their debts. But what, what could possibly happen is this, this slave, when he was free, he could bind himself voluntarily to his master. And when this was done, they would say, Master, you know what? This, this has worked out really well. I feel like my life is flourishing, your life is flourishing when we're together. Right? And they'd say, Master, you know better than I do, and I have loved serving you. So I want to remain your servant. And so what they would do is they'd say these oaths in front of people, and then they would, they would drive an awl through the ear of the slave and drive that all into the doorframe of their house. And that would be a symbol that you're bound to this household. So a bondservant is a voluntary slave. 
Someone that recognizes that they have a master that can take care of them better than they can take care of themselves. Winky Prattney describes it this way. He says, when a man becomes a slave, he ceases to have any say in his life as long as he remains a slave. He has been bought with a price and belongs absolutely to his master. All that a slave has and is lies under the control of his new owner. He is not free until death from the control of his Lord. He is called to serve and to go on serving regardless of praise or blame, weariness or sickness, thanks or disgrace. You catch that? So James describes himself as a bondservant of his Lord. He looked at Jesus and said, you know how to run my life better than I do. I'm going to bind myself to your household, to your kingdom. And what that meant is that he had to give up his rights. So, what rights do we give up? What rights do we give up when we become bond slaves to Jesus? Well, first one is you have to die to the right of acceptance. You have to give up the right of acceptance. Acceptance of belonging, being thought well of, feeling loved and cared for. For a lot of us, this is really hard. I'll be honest, this, is, this one's really hard for me to die to. I want people to like me. It's rare that people do. You know what I mean? So when somebody does, I'm like, no, 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 don't let go of that. But if you have become a bond slave of Jesus, you no longer have the right to be accepted by your peers. You've died to that right. You gave it up. Another one, the right to accomplishment. Accomplishment is a longing to do something worthwhile with time, talents, and opportunity. We all want to feel accomplished. We want to be able to look back on our lives and say, I did something. I did something that mattered. I did something important. But if you're truly a bondservant of Jesus, you must die to this right you no longer have the right to accomplish anything. Provision. The right to provision. Having food, housing, clothes, and money to meet needs, pay bills, or pay taxes, which is theft. In our culture, this is the hardest thing to die to. This is the hardest thing for us to die to. But God, I want a new Xbox. I should have a right to that. I have a right to go to Target whenever I want. It's not true. If you've become a slave to Jesus, if you have bound yourself to him and his kingdom, 
you are no longer allowed to care about your provision. Possessions. We must die to the right to own possessions. Things we can, possessions are things we can call our own. Belongings to use in the business of living. We live in an extremely materialist culture. There's this phrase that um, I don't know if people say anymore, but I'm old, so I still say it. Have you heard of keeping up with the Joneses? Heard of that? Basically, it's, it's when like your neighbor gets a new car and you start wanting a new car, and so you feel like you need to get a new car, and then you go into debt and... And before you know it, you're like, I'm up to my eyeballs in debt because you want to keep up with the Joneses because you have a right to having the latest and greatest possessions. But if you're a slave to Jesus, you don't have this right. He is your only possession. How about this one? The right to safety. Safety is to be protected from hurt danger or disaster, illness, incapacity, or disability. Or maybe we could even add on to that. Safe from emotional pain. Safe from words that will hurt. Safe from relationships that will hurt. If you are a follower of Jesus, you do not have the right to be safe. He is your protector. And that means any arrow that strikes you is one that he allowed to. You must die to your right to stay safe. Lastly, security. Security is assurance of tomorrow. Whatever the future holds, a sense of guidance. Y'all are in college. You're planning out the rest of your lives. This one's really important. We want to know that we'll be assured of tomorrow. We want to have security that our future will hold something for us. Right? But Jesus says, worry not for tomorrow, for each day has enough cares of its own. You don't have the right of security. He is your security. So, if we are truly slaves to Jesus, if we are truly bondservants to him, then we must die to all of these things. Because he is the one that dictates these things to us. We must be about our master's business, not ours. You see that? Are you all tracking with me? Everybody okay? Is this too mean? I don't even care if you said yes, so. And the amazing thing is, is that we can see this progression in James' life. Look at how he responded at first to Jesus. He responded because he was worried about acceptance 
and safety. He wanted society to like him. He wanted his neighbors not to hate him. He didn't want his family to be shamed by that crazy brother of his that was walking around on water claiming to be God. Right? And then he was worried about his safety. What if people think that I'm with him? Will they kill me? Will they persecute me? Will I be cast out? I don't have security in tomorrow now. We can see him processing these things through the scriptures, right? But then he saw the resurrected Jesus. Then Jesus appeared to him. And everything changed. And he looked at our Lord and Savior. And he put his fingers in the holes in his hands. And he touched the side where the spear went in. And he said, Master, you know better than I do. And I love serving you. And then Jesus bound him to his kingdom. And then he no longer could concern himself with his rights. We no longer see him worried about being accepted by the people around him. We see him with reckless disregard for his own safety. We see him foolishly throwing away what tomorrow could possibly bring because the Lord has given him today. Do you see that? So our options, our options, right? The crazy thing is like that, that instinct, that instinct to fight for rights, to fight for justice is so good. It's correct. There's nothing wrong with it. That's why we all feel it. Right? But it has to be in the right place. Where do we allow that fire to start? If I start a fire in my fireplace, it warms the home. It brings life and enjoyment and peace. If I start a fire on my couch... We got a whole world of trouble. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So where do we want to start this fire? Where do we want to let this thing burn in our hearts? You can be like me and foolishly get, get distracted about my rights. We can, we can argue with people over a broom. That's my broom. No, it's my broom. Right? We can stand up for our own rights and look really foolish in the process. Or, maybe even more nobly, we can stand up for the rights of others. That's his broom. We can concern ourselves about the downtrodden, the outcast, the disenfranchised. Or maybe, maybe we can think about the most disenfranchised person of all. Maybe we can, we can stand up for the person who has his rights violated over and over and over again a thousand times a day. 
and yet he does not fight. God has a right on your life. Doubly so if you call yourself a Christian. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means that everything on the earth is his. And everything that's of the earth is his. It's his by right. But has he ever kicked down your door and demanded you? No. He waits for you to come to him and say, Lord, you know better than I do. I love serving you. God is the being out there that deserves to have someone fight for his rights. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to fight for his rights. So what does this mean? That means being a witness for him in his kingdom on this campus. What does it look like to stand up for the rights of God in someone else's life? It's to love them and push them towards Jesus. For your brothers and sisters, the people that are in your small groups, that looks like not letting them walk in stupidity. Because God deserves to have good servants, not bad ones. God has a right on your life. The only time that it is just to stand up for rights is when it's his rights. No tracking? The worship team can come back up. Oh, that clock's off. Looked up there, I was like, wow, 720. It's not. That was the fastest sermon ever. So for some of us, <clears throat> some of us need to actually make a decision. Are we going to die to our rights? Are we going to lay down our right to be accepted our right to accomplish, our right for provision, our right to possessions, our rights to safety and security. Are we going to die to those things for God's rights? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be like James the Just, who spent his time seeking justice for God on earth? Are we willing to become him? Or do we want to stay like a two-year-old and fight each other over brooms and make a mockery of ourselves? So we'll go ahead and we'll sing a couple songs. If you feel the need to come forward, go ahead. But I think what would be great is if the Lord has spoken to you about any of this, then tell your small group. 
Tell the people that love you, people that will fight for God's right in your life, so that as the week goes on, they can stand up for God's rights in your life. Does that make sense? Hey, look, I really, I really, I really want to, I, I struggle with acceptance. I want, I, I want to be accepted by people. I want people to like me. But I know that if I'm going to walk with Jesus, I know that if I'm going to walk with Jesus, that means that people won't. There will be somebody that doesn't like me because I walk with God. Will you help me? Will you help me die to this right? Will you pray with me right here, right now? So that I can nail that to his cross. And it can die and be buried in the grave. Y'all see that? I want to challenge y'all to do that with your small group. If the Lord's spoken to you. If he hasn't, then that's probably my fault. Let's pray.